3: Welcome once again, viewsroom Room listeners. We'd like to take this opportunity as we get towards the end of the year to thank you for listening both to this week's episode and for all of 2016. Now, this week we'd like to do something a little bit different. Rather than telling you what we think of what has been happening, we're going to give you our ideas of what may well happen next year. It's what we call our predictions. I know it's a, it's a name you never would have thought up yourself. Uh, really, really not obvious whatsoever. And in the studio with me today, I've got Kevin Allison, who's a Chicago columnist and also the guy we put in charge of running predictions from the U.S. for us, along with a couple of colleagues around the world. Kevin, just give us a quick introduction to the process we've gone through and and what we're looking to get out of these predictions.
1: Right. Well, every year, our columnists around the world, from Hong Kong to to London to New York to Chicago to Washington, we get together and try to push things a little bit forward and say, what are the really big themes and issues and specific issues about around companies and markets that we think are going to be relevant to investors next year. So, so we go
3: through a good process of a, sort of a month or two of back and forth chatting. We had a, a wonderful uh, session with you a month or so ago where we went through various ideas. We're looking at what, sort of 30, 40 pieces in a book and then another 20 or 30 that, that we'll publish as well in addition to the book?
1: That's right. And, and these are meant to be... Well, we'd love for them to be correct. We'd love to correctly predict things, and we have done in the past. So mm. back in, in 2013, we wrote a prediction that the oil market looked like it was at risk of a, a sudden collapse, and then in 2014 it did. It uh, was yours, wasn't it? It was indeed. Oh, what but, a sure. <laughs> uh, but w- more important than being correct, I think, is that the views, we try to make them, like we always do at Breaking Views, we try to make them provocative and interesting. Right. If we think that a, that a major deal is going to happen in, in 2017, we say what sector we think it's gonna be in, but also the companies. And Mm. even if we're not exactly right, or some of our numbers are a little bit off, we've still kind of laid down that marker for something we think is gonna be a major event or a major trend that people Mm. in the markets are gonna be watching Mm. next year. And each year we try and come up with a theme, and and
3: we've pretty much been handed one on a platter from 2016, which I think a lot of people, for a variety of reasons, are very happy to see the back of. Of Uh, course,
1: yeah, I mean, the picture on the front page of our book this year is is a seismograph showing an earthquake shaking shaking the world and the title of the book is all shook up and as you can imagine the the events of the US election of Donald Trump uh, from that to Brexit in the UK in June are sending seismic waves through geopolitics economics markets and and a lot of the prediction book is about how in real practical terms, is that going to manifest itself in 2017 and why that's important for investors?
3: Okay, Kevin, why don't we give you the first crack since you're here already to talk us through one of your predictions for next year, and that is what the new CEO of Exxon is going to have to deal with. Rex Tillerson, who's been at the helm for about a decade, is finally stepping down. Take us through why uh, you think Exxon is is a great example of a company we need to be uh, coming up with a great prediction about
1: right well we can be reasonably certain that rex tillerson will not be the ceo of Exxon at the end of 2017 he's hitting mandatory retirement age in march of next year that's typically the age where the board says okay time for you to step aside and, and put someone else in right. now they could always say no we love rex let's let's keep him around but he they've Exxon have already teed up they've got this well-oiled succession machine ho, ho. they they just earlier this year appointed a guy named darren woods as their president right. and elevated him to the board of directors. It's, right. it's a pretty unless clear he massively sign. screws it up, he's going to be CEO of Exxon sometime in 2017. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing about it is just what kind of company Darren Woods is inheriting versus the company that that Rex Tillerson mm-hmm. inherited when when he took the top job in 2006.
3: And let's let's start off with. The very obvious comparison, which is market capitalization. The company right. is now worth $360 billion, give or take. That's right. Whereas when Rex Tillerson took over, it was worth?
1: $350 billion. Wow. So, so
3: that shows a great deal of change affecting Exxon and not for the good over the past few years. So
1: That's right. That's right. So, um, And that's not the only metric where Exxon's been lagging. It has this reputation as one of the industry's best, most disciplined investors and most efficiently mm. run companies. It's just this... Like I said, a well-oiled machine. It has been for years, but if you look a little closer, its total return has been lagging that of, of for example, Chevron. So mm-hmm. this is the, always the, it's always been the kind of also-ran U.S. oil yeah. major. And so I mean, the, the whole idea is that, that Darren Woods is taking over, confronting a kind of weakened empire. Exxon is still the, for the moment at least, the world's biggest investor-owned, publicly listed oil company. It may not be that by the end of 2018, after which Saudi Aramco, which has long been the world's biggest crude producer, is expected to do an IPO.
3: And that's going to be. It could be worth what? What's the figure? It could be worth.
1: Some analysts think it could be worth north of a trillion dollars. It's just so huge. I mean, Exxon is already huge at 350 billion. Yeah. But Aramco could be worth a trillion, and it could have a market cap uh, by by the end of 2018, which it doesn't have today. So Exxon will be will be knocked off that pedestal. Uh, It also is has shell royal dutch shell the the anglo-dutch oil major mm. nipping at its heels so yeah. shells market cap has risen from 100 and, around 150 billion dollars in 10 years ago to more to over 200 billion today because they've done things like buy bg group this gigantic gas and oil producer that's mm. active in in deep water in brazil for example at one of the in, in the absolute biggest petroleum deal you know in, a, in about a decade and Shell has, has very specifically, their CEO, Ben Van Burden, has explicitly said, we want to overtake Exxon on some key measures, mm. production of oil, which some analysts think that they actually could overtake mm-hmm. Exxon in oil production by 2019, and on total shareholder return. Right. So So Exxon, it's still the king. They're still the industry standard, but they've got some serious competition now that they didn't necessarily have back in 2006 when Rex Tillerson took over.
3: What could go in in Darren Wood's favor? I mean, I, I, I think, on the one hand, I think uh, you know Exxon's always been relatively quiet about climate change. Donald Trump is going to be the next U.S. president. Mm-hmm. Uh, he intends to roll back a lot of the regulations that have stopped a lot more drilling. But could that help Exxon more than
1: others, do you think? I think it will help. I mean, I think in the oil industry next year, Oil prices are going to rise. They've already rallied above 50 after being stuck below $50 a barrel for, for a long time on the back of this OPEC deal. There is this sense that the oil sector is picking itself up off the ground and kind of moving on with life after the, yep. the price crash of the last two years. What's Exxon's main advantage and the thing that should mean that it continues to, to be the emperor of the oil patch for a while longer is, if you set aside shareholder return and set aside production – it's still the industry's best in terms of return on capital employed. That is, the amount of, of profit before interest payments and before tax that they make across all of the capital in their business, right. all of the debt that, that lenders have lent to it, and all of the shareholder capital that shareholders hold, their return is still solidly ahead of anyone in the industry. Mm. And it's a it's a legacy of this famed investment discipline. So yeah. Exxon had a little stumble in during Tillerson's tenure. They, they were late to get into the shale game. Other companies, smaller companies kind of got in ahead of the oil majors in the shale fields that are the source of most of the growth mm. in oil in the years to come. Uh, they, When they did dive into it, they overpaid for a company called XTO Energy. It took them a while to sort that out. Yeah. But in general, they've got the best assets in the industry. They've got look at the kind of lowest cost, gigantic conventional fields that just keep pumping out oil and need some basic mm. investment. But they've also got the sort of operational efficiency and management discipline, which means that that, that return on capital employed is just, it's just higher than others. It was right. something like, on average, seven percentage points ahead of, of Shell over the last five years. Although that has narrowed. It, well, it's, it's, starting to, it's starting to get squished down. I mean, both of the companies made, made sub-10% returns last year yeah. uh, as oil prices really cratered. I think Wood's big advantage is that that return on capital premium that Exxon earns Because it's tied up in investment decisions that have been made over decades, it's going to take time to unwind. So no matter how aggressive Shell gets about becoming bigger than Exxon, trying to boost its shares more than Exxon, which, of course, you can do by things other than investing smartly in assets. You can do it by buying back stock and and, and paying dividends and so on. No matter how aggressive the sort of pretenders to the throne try to get, I think our ultimate conclusion is that, that that kind of imperial advantage that Exxon has of its, of its return on capital employed, mm. it should endure for a few more years yet. All right.
3: So let's assume Darren Woods takes over next year. What's his first major act going to be? Is he going to buy something, dispose of something, or just sit there and try not to rock the boat for a while?
1: I think if you were to ask the sort of executive suite at Exxon, they'll say they don't really care who's the biggest and who, who makes produces the most oil or, or, or even – in the kind of short run which for them i think means even five or ten years who's making the best returns they're really just laser focused on return on capital employed so if right. he sees an opportunity to scoop up a company that's that's still maybe not quite recovering as much as it should have from oil prices we, we've thought at breaking views for a long time that that they'd make a big acquisition that was yeah. one of our wrong predictions last year yeah was that a, an oil mega deal was brewing in the u.s right it, it never really happened i thought that exxon might be might come off of the bench and, and just using its sort of superior firepower, just scoop up a bunch of stuff mm. that was trading at really low values before all prices rallied. They didn't do that. I'm not sure if they'll do it next year, but but you can be guaranteed that they will be laser focused on that return on capital employed target. And, and they've got the advantage there.
3: Kevin Allison, a Chicago columnist and the man in charge of the Breaking Views predictions book for us this year. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.
4: Next up from Hong Kong, we have Pete Sweeney interviewing Quentin Webb about Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and why a Trump presidency might not be so bad for the Japanese economy.
5: So Quentin, you have a thesis here that the Trump era might not be such a bad thing for Japan. Uh, How does that work out exactly?
6: Well, I think the original reading was that this would be pretty problematic for Japan because Japan is a country that's very dependent on globalization and it has also depended a lot on America's role as a kind of global policeman um, securing peace in Asia Pacific. However, there's a sort of second way of thinking about this, which is actually there are both kind of economic and political benefits. I'm thinking about, in particular, what it means for Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Um, So I argue in the piece there are two ways in which he benefits. First, um, economically, you have already a bit of a rally underway in the US, and that has helped Japan too. When the American economy booms, Japan tends to do well too. Um, The yen has weakened a lot, which is a big boost to Japanese exporters. Uh, The Japanese stock market is up almost 20% since the US election. So all of that is quite welcome. The second point, though, is that on the political side, Abe now looks like a statesman. He looks like an elder statesman. Compared to Trump? Well, compared to most world leaders, Japan used to go through prime ministers that are kind of worrying rate of knots. It was almost like an Italian-style system. And having Abe in power for a few years actually means he's now one of the longest-standing major world leaders. So he gains gravitas by, by being in that position. And in fact, there's a sense that there are people within the Trump administration who are Japanophiles, like Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, and Abe's party is a right-wing, deregulating, tax-cutting party, the Liberal Democratic Party. They've always made common cause more easily with the Republicans than the Democrats. So there's a sense in Japan that the two administrations can maybe rub along a bit better than was first anticipated.
5: Well, Japan looked like it made some, some quick, very quick moves to get alongside Trump. Uh, you know, Abe famously said, you know, just get to meet anybody around Trump. You seem to be seeing uh, signs of renewed investment, or not renewed investment, but continued outbound investment into the States. I mean, is this how, how does this play out in terms of Japanese capital in the US? Do you see like a, a
6: surge or, or a more investment or just kind of business as usual on that front? Well, Japanese com- companies are confronting a sort of demographic crisis at home. Japan's population is ageing and shrinking. So across many industries, they have to do more overseas. They have to rebase away from home. So I think that will continue. They like the US as a predictable market. Um, They feel they understand it. I think we'll see more outbound deals into the US, for example. It wouldn't be surprising to see more acquisitions of banks or other financial assets in America. Um, And you have to remember some of these companies actually look quite American on the ground. Um, For example, some of the big automakers have major plants in bits of America that voted for Trump. So for those guys, actually, they, um, they are probably not going to get caught in a, a kind of protectionist wave because they're actually employing American factory workers in key states like Indiana.
5: You know, Japan very politely ratified TPP even though uh, the treaty is considered dead, and this was obviously something that Japan and other people in Asia who are kind of aligned with the U.S. had been looking forward to. In the new environment where Trump appears to be revisiting or you know, reconsidering America's commitment to, to free trade as a you know, status quo, also its security commitments um, to Japan. How does that work out for Japanese exports? I mean, you pointed out that the lower currency is, you know, good for Japanese exports, but that's sort of the very thing that Trump has been kind of complaining about. And the U.S. has had problems with Japan in the past for its its export-oriented policies. Do you see that as being a point of friction this time around?
6: Well, there's some optimism in Japan that some kind of trade deal might be rescued We hosted a predictions panel in Tokyo at the beginning of December and a senior LDP figure there said you could see a sort of Trump-Pacific partnership, so some kind of rebadged trade deal could still happen. Um, The other thing to think about is that actually Japanese companies are increasingly already producing overseas. They already have overseas earnings, so in that way they become a bit more shielded from a trade slowdown or a trade war um, but it's, there's no denying that Japan was one of the countries that stood to gain the most from TPP, and this is a bit of a, a blow to them. Thanks much.
7: Sometimes the numbers line up for M&A, but the chances of pushing to the finish line to close the deal is another matter altogether. Some 850 billion of tie-ups since the beginning of 2015 are waiting, at least as of December 1st, to close. Joining me from London is Breaking View's European editor, John Foley, to puzzle out the M&A activity. Hey, John. Hi, Jen. So uh, there are a lot of factors at play here, including cheap debt. That's like fueling a lot of these deals. But what are some of the conditions for M&A kind of going on right now that is that's making it hard for some of these things like, well, for example, AT&T's $85 billion bid for Time Warner? Like, there's some questions like what's happening there? What's going on?
2: Well, you know, this year was always going to be a bit disappointing for M&A because last year was the best year ever. So, so M&A volumes are already down about 20% from a year ago and uh, there was going to be some elements probably of a cool down, whatever happened. But there are some extra factors. We've got some really big deals that are kind of stuck in the pipes. Um, you mentioned AT&T's bit for time. Warner, but there's also Dow and DuPont, huge $130 billion chemicals merger. Um, that's also stuck. There are some um, some huge health insurance deals, um, Etna and Humana and Anthem and Cigna, those are also kind of like caught up in the mechanism as mostly as antitrust authorities try and work out whether they are comfortable for these deals to proceed. But also we've sort of seen a, a, a bit of a turn away from the kind of open borders, globalisation jamboree that we've had in recent years and, and it's looking more likely that uh, governments are going to get involved and potentially meddle with some big deals. Britain is one country that has said openly that it's going to start to think again about its rules on when it's okay to sell certain kinds of strategic assets to foreign companies. And it's very likely that, um, that in the US uh, you will see something similar happen under President-elect Donald Trump. So, uh, so not only do you have antitrust authorities trying to work out whether these deals leave customers worse off, but you also probably have politicians who are going to take a more active role in meddling, which means that a lot of these deals may just get stuck until they eventually you know, fizzle away altogether
7: okay so i'm i'm going to put you on the spot here uh, the volume is down but the actual deal dollars itself are they bigger than they were last year i mean because the deals tend to be they, they seem to be much more sizable. but um, or is, well, well,
2: the mix, that's a really interesting question because actually big deals, um, although they get the headlines and are uh, you know, make great stories for journalists and great, um, great work for bankers who get big fees on them, uh, they're not necessarily the best deals. Like, studies tend to show that smaller deals create more value. They create more innovation. They're sort of better, if you like, for the economy. And at the moment, the mix of small deals relative to big ones – and by small deals, I mean deals that are under a billion dollars – um, they're only about a third of total M&A at the moment, and, and a couple of years ago that was more like 45%, 50%. So actually we've seen, a, we've seen more than the fair share of big deals, and if those start to get more difficult to do, that isn't necessarily a bad thing because we may see a pickup in the small deals that actually are where some of the good ideas uh, and some of the genuine uh, innovation and value come from, as opposed to just big deals that are often based on you know, sacking loads of people and cutting costs.
7: Did you notice any corollary between that, that the smaller deals could kind of fly under the radar and the bigger deals are kind of stuck in the pipe?
2: They do tend to have a better chance of going under the radar, if you like, because they, just because they're smaller, a lot of com- countries, like take China, for example, China's trigger for whether it looks at a deal and, and, and vets it, and this can take months to go through the process. That depends on how, how big the companies are, if they have revenue over a certain size. So if you're buying small companies here and there, then it's much less likely that you're going to trip that switch, which means that the regulators tie you up in loads of red tape. Um, but it's also, it's easier for companies to buy small other small companies because they don't necessarily need to to disclose them to shareholders if you look at some again Chinese companies like Alibaba which is a big e-commerce company. It's been picking up loads of little um, rivals and startups, but that are of a size where it doesn't actually have to disclose that much about the company's finances. So shareholders, you know, really none the wiser. So small deals can be easy to do. They're also probably better because if you're buying a small company, it's easier to integrate fewer people, less room for culture clash. So those small deals are both easier and probably more easier to do from a regulatory perspective. And also they're probably more easily digested by the buying company.
7: Okay, so if you were to put on your hat and peer into the the crystal ball, what would you think, what are the probability of some of these deals passing? Like, do you think some of them will get through? Do you think none of them will? Do you think it's just, it's going to be a complete toss up?
2: it's difficult to pick the ones that that regulators will take objection to. One deal in Europe that is getting a lot of attention but has really been rumbling along for a long time is the merger of Deutsche Borsa and the London Stock Exchange. Um, That's going through the European Commission at the moment but also there's a kind of weird quirk with that deal because the local state regulator in Germany where Deutsche Borsa is based also gets a say on whether it thinks that this deal is in Germany's interests and at the moment the mood music is that they're not particularly happy about what they see Um, but there are other deals that, that maybe could go through but we kind of hope they won't so a good example of this is Bayer and Monsanto Bayer is a German chemicals company it's buying Monsanto which makes various kinds of weed killer and it's paying a huge price for it and the result is that Bayer's shares have really underperformed last time I looked they were down about you know Bayer was about 12 billion dollars smaller than it would have been if it hadn't and launch this deal. And shareholders don't get a say on where this deal goes ahead. So in a sense, if that deal falls foul of the antitrust regulators, it would probably be a good thing for buyers' shareholders. We'll have to wait and see where the regulators agree. Thanks, John. Cool. See you next year.
7: Populism may have sent Donald Trump to the White House, but his economic policies will help the working class the least. Joining us from Washington is Breaking View's columnist Gina Chan, who for the past year has been following the U.S. presidential election closely. Welcome, Gina.
4: Thanks for having me.
7: You've been looking at all of Trump's economic suggestions, (laughs) policies. What are some of his plans and and ultimately, who are they going to help?
4: Well, he's repeatedly said, and, and so of his advisors, that his top priority, likely uh, after he takes office, is his tax plan. Uh, he proposes cuts for both personal income and corporate taxes. But while everyone, at least on the personal income front, will get a, a bit of a break, it really helps the top 1% the most. The bottom guess 80% would get, you know, maybe like a maximum, like just shy of 2% bump, uh, according to a tax foundation analysis. But it's really the, the top earners who would get really a double-digit um, boost in their after tax income, as, as high as uh, 16% or so, um, according to the tax foundation. That doesn't include some of his plans on the corporate front, which, uh, as you mentioned, one, one part of that is trying to incentivize companies like Apple to bring back about, you know, more than $2 trillion or so cash they have uh, overseas, uh, partly because of the high rates here in the United States. Um, but again, that will probably just help higher-income individuals because uh, most experts uh, estimate that, even if that cash is brought back, it won't really lead to job creation, that sort of thing. And instead will be used for um, dividends and stock buybacks, which will help investors, which again are, are largely more wealthier individuals.
7: Right, which is essentially what many of these companies
4: are doing now. Exactly. Yeah, just, it'll just be more.
7: <laughs> well, I mean, which is interesting because, you know, I think it's not a bad idea to try and get the money back into the U.S. And then, I mean, I think part of his plan, too, is to lower the, the, the tax rate, right? Did I see a number of like 20% or something like that that was floating around? Because in the U.S., it's one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. Is that is that correct?
4: yeah so the current rate is about uh thirty five percent and he wants to bring it down to fifteen percent that 's even lower than some of the republicans' plans, which I think is more around the the twenty percent that you had mentioned um so it would definitely you know rationalize the system a bit more, especially as you see um, the u k Ireland other places also um already having lower rates or or looking to lower them so That has been a problem for the United States and definitely does um, create incentives for companies to leave or try to make deals that would move their headquarters. It's just a question of, you know, he sort of came to office on the back of this sort of populist tide. And when you parse through his plans, you you see that actually, you know, a lot of the people who supported him will actually maybe get the, the least amount of help from his policies.
7: All right. So another one of Trump's big pushes is, is uh, uh, to increase spending on infrastructure. And even that, there, there's some question as if that will really help people or if it's really just going to, you know, basically help a bunch of corporations that are, you know, gunning for some of these projects.
4: Yeah, well, on the surface, you know, spending on infrastructure, he suggested up to about a trillion dollars, looks like sort of a win-win, like, you know, you get um, some sort of stimulus plan, it creates jobs, uh, you know, everyone's happy. But actually, when you sort of dig into it, at least the plan put forth by his economic advisors, uh, Wilbur Ross, who is slated to be his commerce secretary and economics professor, Peter Navarro, who is one of his economic advisors, they're pitching a plan that actually relies more on private financing. And to incentivize those investors, they uh, would give um, people who put money into these projects a, a decent um, tax credit and basically try to also figure out a payment stream, whether it's high tolls or or some sort of method, other method that would basically give them a 10% rate of return. So that does raise questions of, you know, who is that really going to help? Um, A lot of times then these, these projects do actually have high tolls and people either can't afford to then travel on those roads or the projects um, become bankrupt. Uh, there's a couple cases of highways in Texas and, and elsewhere where this has actually happened. Um, the other problem is is that because if you do a private backers, they're really looking for profitable projects, and so that's going to be in wealthier areas. And in lower income places where infrastructure is probably more dilapidated in terms of their bridges and roads that actually do need the help could be ignored um, if you are relying on this private financing.
7: So basically, even a trickle down may not even be a trickle.
4: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Or they'll have to wait a a really long time. Uh, I mean, for some of these plans like the like his tax plan it's not to say um you know people on sort of the lower income end of the spectrum won't be helped it's just that the wealthier end of it will be helped a lot more and so you know just skewing then the income inequality that's just been building in our sort of economic system since the 80s
7: Uh, okay well gina thank you for your time and your insight on this i uh, really appreciate it
4: thanks for having me
3: Let's turn to what 2017 holds for the world of entertainment, or let's be a bit more specific here. What is Disney going to do next? Now, Disney is all over the Star Wars franchise. The latest movie has recently come out, Rogue One. The year before that, we had uh, The Force Awakens. This was meant to be the way for Disney to prove how fantastic it was, which I think was one of our predictions last year, Jen, about how well it would do from Star Wars. Um, the stocks down 20% this year and uh, they've got a a CEO who just won't leave. So you've got a prediction saying (laughs) there may well be a way for Disney uh, to kill two birds with one stone.
7: That's right. Talk us through it. (laughs) So let's kind of step back and explain what's kind of going on at Disney right now. You're right. They had these Blockbuster movies with Star Wars. They opened uh, their uh, park in, in Shanghai, which has also been uh, quite successful. They, they have all these things kind of notched under their belt, and yet the shares are down 20%. And that is because in August of 2015, Chief Executive Bob Iger basically said, listen, um, the number of subscribers to ESPN is dropping. And and ESPN,
3: for our, for our non-U.S. listeners, is one of the major TV sports channels in uh, in the US. It, it is the, major, it is the sports. major sports. I
7: mean, it, it, it gets the most money. It is the one of the main drivers of profit, operating profit for Disney. It is a very, very important piece of business. So what's Disney. going wrong there? So, you know, they're, they're basically pricey cable packages. More and more people are ditching those uh, packages. And ESPN is is feeling the fallout from that. So that has been a huge overhang to, to Disney. And then on top of it, you know, in the spring, Uh, The heir apparent, Tom Staggs, he was going to replace Bob Iger, who is supposed to leave in 2018, I believe, said, you know, hey, wait a minute, he's leaving the company and our succession plans are no longer in place. So those are two big events that have happened. Um, So my suggestion, and, and there's been a lot of rumbling about this, is that, you know, maybe Disney needs to look and... Possibly by Netflix, <laughs> and so, um, and I'll take you through the reasoning why that that may make some sense.
3: Let me just stop you there. I recall you writing a piece uh, a couple of months ago saying that Netflix looks pretty dicey because it's got to keep just the amount of money it's spending on content is going to leave it constantly needing to raise debt and uh-huh. maybe not grow earnings.
7: <laughs> Precisely why maybe Disney should buy uh-huh. it. Aha. So. Yeah. I mean, look, look. Netflix is valued at about, I don't know, $50, $50 billion or now. It, it has a crazy market cap, kind of given that they have, you know, really meager uh, net income. I mean, they're right. basically spending to get more subscribers. They have about 88 maybe or so, give or take, yeah. million subscribers around the world, which is, you know, that's that's nothing to sneeze at. That's yeah. That's quite... That's quite terrific. In 2017, they said that they're going to spend more than $6 billion on content, which is an extraordinary amount. Yeah. Uh, for example, HBO, which is one of their competitors, pays about a third of that. Right. Um, so, $6 billion next year on content. You know, that's a lot of money. And, you know, Disney basically has a nice content-generating studio, movie studio, as we were saying about Star Wars. They have, you know, TV stations. They have ESPN. They have a lot of things that they could probably say, okay, listen, Netflix, we can help you out in this area. So I, you know, basically did the numbers and said, like, okay, let's just assume that Disney does this, and they give Netflix a 30% premium. Which Which
3: is is just uh, what we assume is a... A regular premium yeah, a in the standard general course premium, of things like in an in a, in a M&A deal.
7: Yeah, a 30% premium, that gets you to about $65 billion uh, to take out Netflix. And and just to step back, too, Disney's market cap is currently around $160 billion.
3: It's a pretty big deal.
7: It's a big deal, and it's a very it, it's a risky deal, so I don't want to suggest... Big deal for very
3: little um, new income.
7: Right, and the other issue is that, you know... the. They would need to find about $2 billion in cost savings. Just to know,
3: justify that premium. To justify that let premium. Let alone the 100 times earnings is already trading out before the premium. Right. right.
7: So now getting to that number is not maybe necessarily as difficult as it looks because they're already spending $6 billion on content. So they could probably easily cut that budget by a third and still not really you know hurt it too much maybe but, even by, more and,
3: and by using disney content
7: by using disney content right and and i should also say that disney and netflix already have uh deals in place you know star wars sure. for example is going to be on netflix um should and be everywhere frankly it, right so um they have a relationship and that's not all that you know they don't netflix doesn't have great relationships with all the media companies like a lot of them have been sort of like basically eyeballing Netflix and being like, you know. Okay,
3: so that that takes care of of whether financially it might make sense or at least longer term give Disney a way into proper video streaming as it tries to get around this whole idea of people dropping their cable boxes, dropping their cable box subscriptions. The other issue, as you mentioned earlier, is Bob Iger's succession is now left open. So if they buy Netflix, they get...
7: They could get Reed Hastings.
3: What's so good about Reed Hastings?
7: So, I mean, Reed Hastings... You have to give this guy credit. He has done an amazing job with Netflix. It's almost 20 years old. And it is stunning how it started off, I'm sure as you remember, because I remember this, getting uh, little red envelopes Mm. in the mail instead of going to Blockbuster. They basically put Blockbuster out of business. And then... When they realized, hey, listen, you know, people don't always want any, everything on DVD, and the future of streaming, they completely turned their business around, and they said, now this is what we're going to concentrate on, and they've done a phenomenal job at that. So, you know, he deserves a ton of credit. Now, the thing about it is, Netflix is one product, and he's been maniacally focused on one product and one company and kind of one idea. And Disney is a sprawling empire. They have you know, a movie studio. They have cable networks like ESPN. They have you know, ABC, the broadcast network. They have theme parks. They have consumer package uh, licensing agreements. I mean, it's a very complex yeah. business. It's not, it's not um, anywhere near as focused as Netflix. So that, that could be an issue. And also, you know, there's this idea of, of you know, clashing cultures, right? Because, you know, Netflix is quite nimble, you know, Disney has a lot of sort of, you know, structures in place. Their culture is very specific. Yeah. Um, it's a very family-friendly type of place, you know, very different. But all that said, he, he could make a good candidate to, to replace Bob Iger.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, final question for you. I appreciate this. Is, this is a great prediction. I love the way you've talked through this. But be honest. How would you handicap the likelihood of this deal? What percentage would you put on this happening next
7: year? Well... Ah. <laughs> Flip a coin, maybe 50%. I mean, there's been a lot of rumblings about this. Listen, on an earnings call, Bob Iger said, you know what we're interested in? We're interested in acquiring technology that is going to allow us to connect directly to consumers. So they already bought a stake in uh, MLB's uh, technology, and they have the. That's the baseball. That's the baseball um, here. Major at, League Baseball. Major League Baseball. And they, um, which is known for its streaming um, technology. So um, they've certainly have moved in that direction. Now, again, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge uh, risky deal. Doesn't mean it would happen. Um, but, you know, I think there's maybe, maybe a 50% chance. Well, as I believe one of
3: our <laughs> other predictions talk about, the idea of, uh, of some big deals happening that maybe make sense, but maybe also look like the very top of the market. This one would fit right in. Yeah. Thanks, Jen.
7: All right. Much has changed over the past year. Two of the world's oldest democracies, the United Kingdom and the United States, have been shocked by voters who ultimately registered their dismay over the political establishment and financial leaders. The U.S. election of Donald Trump to the country's highest office, coupled with Britain's impending break with the European Union, has ushered in a wave of uncertainty. And yet there were clues as to what was to come. Joining me from London is Peter Tao Larson, economics editor at Breaking Views, and the lucky guy who took the lead on Breaking View's annual predictions book, Welcome, Peter. Hi, Jen. So let's start with uh, kind of a look back. How did we do?
8: Well, I mean, the first thing to say, obviously, is that the predictions, the point of predictions is to sort of give people a provocative, thought-provoking sort of uh, set of set of views about the year ahead. So we're not trying to get everything right. But obviously, we like to be right rather than wrong, if possible. Um, so. Uh, you know, as is often the case with these things, we got a we scored a few hits and we had a few misses. I mean, on the in the hits category, I would say, um, you know, you mentioned the, the the US election. Uh, we had a prediction in the book last year that predicted that Hillary Clinton would have a tough time at that point. Remember, she was the clear favorite, absolute favorite front runner. We predicted she'd have a tough, tough, tough time because of her uh, because of the economic slowdown, basically, and, and the struggles to get the economy going again. I can't say that we predicted that. Her, uh, who her uh, her main rival would be, we had a list of potential candidates at that point, but we did at least sort of say that she would um, she would find it difficult and, and on brexit actually we had a we had a prediction in the book last year, which was like a a fictional letter from a a, a bank CEO explaining to his employees why he had begun the process of moving their jobs out of London, which happened after the brexit vote, um, and so we kind of uh, again I, I wouldn't say one hundred percent with one hundred percent certainty we predicted it was going to happen, but we, uh, we, cons- we, we 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 realized it was a strong possibility
7: here's the thing i don't know about you, but when I was sitting down to write it, it was really Difficult. <laughs> 2017, to me, there's there's so much uncertainty in that when you kind of, you know, try and peer into the crystal ball, I don't know about you, but I just like see a bunch of um, swirling haze, which sort of adds a level of difficulty. There are so many unknowns. And it seems like, you know, the market, though, um, is kind of chugging along as if, I mean, certainly in the United States, the market is, is booming at the moment. And it, the ability for the markets to process that, I mean, is there some sort of disconnect too? Like what, how do you see things going next year? And and is there going to be any sort of fallout or or rationalization or, or, you know, trying to figure out like what's happening?
8: Yeah, I think, I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head. I mean, that is, I think that's also the big difference this time around for doing this exercise than last year. I mean, last year, we had a couple of unknowns, but, you know, you could sort of, you could put odds on them, right? I mean, you could say, well, there's a, I don't know, 25, 35, 40 percent chance that the British will vote to leave the EU. There's a 20 percent, 30 percent chance that Donald Trump will become president. These things were, you know, they were they were sort of, uh, you know, there were, there were kind of odds that could be placed on it. Now, I mean, uh, the polls and the betting markets and everybody got that wrong, but at least it was, you know, there was a sort of range of probabilities that you could sort of, you could price the possible outcomes. And I think when you look at what's what we're facing this year, uh, particularly in relation to Donald Trump, but also, you know, in relation to other things involving Russia and China and, you know, um, uh, the Middle East and, and and politics in Europe, for example, it's much harder to sort of uh, handicap those outcomes. You know, and I think actually that's really what we're seeing in financial markets as we go into the end of the year is that financial markets are quite good at sort of, you know, working out ranges of probabilities and saying – OK, well, if the corporate tax rate in the U.S. goes down uh, by 15, 20 basis, 20 percentage points, then this will be the impact on corporate profits. And that means this for stocks and so forth. But, you know, how do you price the possibility of a trade war with China or, you know, Russia invading the Baltics? You know, it's, it's so radically uncertain that that it can't really be quantified. And so I think at the moment, people are just not trying to quantify it.
7: Yeah. but Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense given that all the markers, I mean, as you mentioned, like the polling results. I mean, nothing was like bearing out the way it was supposed to be, or has it, or how, how it was in the past. I mean, with Brexit and and with the U.S. election, so it seems to like that. That's kind of scary. Like you can't even you can't even point to certain things and say, oh, okay. I mean, it's like now. Um, I mean, it truly is you're flying. You're flying blind in a lot of ways because you just you don't know you don't know anymore. And and I think in the United States, there's been huge debates about polling and and you know and, and the probability and and what's going to happen there.
8: No, I think that's right. I mean, that's also been that's definitely also been shaken. Um, and you see that now uh, in Europe, in the EU, with you know with for example, um, you know the, the the French presidential election. The polls would tell you. Marine Le Pen is, is probably going to get 25, 30 percent of the vote in, the, in, the presidential, in a presidential runoff. Um, but um, nobody really trusts those numbers anymore. So right. <laughs> um, they're sort of considering a wider range of probabilities. Um, but that's the sort of – even that then is, is, is sort of quantifiable. But I mean, the difficult thing would be to sort of then try and think through what happens next. If Marine Le Pen became president of France – what would that mean for the Eurozone, for the future of the EU, for all these kind of, you know, these complex relationships, policies, and so forth? And I think that's the, that's the hard, that's the thing people are really having a tough time with. And everybody acknowledges that uncertainty, but it's so um, outside the normal range of doing things. That I think people are t- really struggling to, to quantify it. And and I think a lot of people are just sort of choosing to ignore it.
7: Well, OK, well, before you go, uh, is there one bright spot or one glimmer of hope that um, you know in the book that you came across that that we could look for next year
8: well there's actually there's several bright spots and we did I mean we did try quite hard to make sure that it wasn't all doom and gloom there's a section in the book which we call good vibrations which is sort of you know the uh, the positive aftershocks of all the sort of the the seismic shifts that we've seen this year but if I was to pick one I would say uh, there's, there's a prediction there for example that says that actually market forces are working on on sort of on clean energy and climate change and that that will continue almost regardless of what the Trump administration administration does so there 's a lot of concern justified concern about you know trump 's uh, sort of view that global warming isn 't a real thing it 's a Chinese invention and um, you know kind of appointing people in his administration who don 't seem to be terribly concerned about that and restarting shale gas drilling in various places and so forth but actually our colleague Anthony Curry uh, has a view that that you know when you just look at the market dynamics at work in in Electric cars and solar power and other forms of renewable energy that the technological developments are such, and the investments that have already been made are such that um, that those things will continue and even if even if the u s administration becomes skeptical about the need to do something about climate change, a lot will continue to happen in the u s at the sort of at the at the state and the city level, and also other countries in the world are pretty committed to doing something about this, including amazingly china so I think that 's one area where we see. Uh, you know, uh, potentially a a, a bright spot um, coming out from behind the clouds.
7: Well, Peter, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh,
4: I appreciate your time.
8: Thank you very much.
4: User and producer Bethel Habte here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a rating and review there. It very much helps others find the show. Please join us next week for part two of our 2017 prediction series. And wherever you are in the world, Happy New Year.
0: This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC.